This is episode number 46 with Seth Godin of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am your host coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of the Founder Podcast. You guys are in for an absolute treat because this episode, I bring you one of my all-time favorite marketers, idols, and this guy's just an absolute beast. Like, I love his work so much. And ever since I became an entrepreneur, well, you know, got into this whole entrepreneurship thing about two and a half years ago, I'd never, I'd never heard of Seth and I didn't really know his work. But once I, I started getting into the scene and, and really hearing about his work, reading it and, and uh, learning from it and reading a lot of his books and reading, you know, signing up to his mailing list and, and reading all his blog posts and stuff like that, I've learned so much. And I, when this guy speaks, I take it very, very seriously and I'm always listening and I'm always watching what he's doing because he's a true innovator, true marketer and entrepreneur. So I'm really, really pumped to share this conversation with you. Uh, funny little story is I pitched Seth like a Friday night. It was like a Friday night. Pitched him at 11.30 and then I woke up to his reply saying, hey, can you do this in half an hour from now? And it was like 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. And I was just like freaking out. And I was like, oh, my God, because this guy's like one of my idols. And, uh, yeah, I, I just rolled with it and jumped on Skype. And it was an amazing conversation. It was it was a really – yeah, for me, it was a really big win to finally speak with Seth. I, knew, I didn't realize he'd get so back to me so fast. And he's just a really generous guy with his time. Um, and uh, – yeah, well, I actually went out to one of my favorite restaurants to celebrate with my family because uh, yeah, this is a big win for the magazine. It's a big win for the brand and a and, uh, big win for me and my own development. So yeah, without further ado, here is the conversation with Seth Godin. We go through what it means to start small, start now. How do you know when to ship a project? How do you know how to market a product? Seth gives us some serious gold on on marketing and validating your idea. And also what I really, really liked is he talked about the education model and why you shouldn't do what you're told. And he talks about his latest book as well. We talk about that just briefly. Now, if you do want a copy of Seth's latest book, to buy them, I had to buy them in bulk. So I have a couple of spare extra copies the first two people that get in touch with me and leave a review for the podcast and the magazine and send it to me and send me an email, nathan at foundermag.com, I will send you his hard copy book. I've got two here. Love to send it to you guys. It's a brilliant book, amazingly designed, really, really cool. It's just like a really nice book to have on your coffee table too. So yeah, please hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. If you are enjoying these episodes, you know, please do leave us a review, even though if you don't want the book, it helps more than you can imagine. 
All right, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in. Can you tell us about, just quickly, how you got your job? Well, I've worked extraordinarily hard not to have a job. And uh, I haven't had a job since 1999. And before that, I hadn't had one since 86. And I think that focusing on doing the work instead of having a job is a key part of being an entrepreneur. And what triggered that change in 1996? Oh, it was 86. Uh, 86. When I I was 14, I started my first little company. And when I was 16, I had my first real company. And when I was in college, I co-founded the largest student-run business in the U.S. And each of those things was never about how do I make money doing something. It was how do I find enough resources to do a project that I'm interested in. How do I be able to put on a show that I care about? And if there's a business component to it, that's fine. But for me, the work has always been to do a project. And sometimes those projects can be amplified by working for someone. But even if you are working for someone, you don't have to act as if it's a job. A job is where you try to please someone who tells you what to do. And that person usually wants you to do what you did yesterday, but a little faster and a little cheaper. Whereas impresarios and people who make projects are playing by a completely different set of rules. Hmm. So let's talk about stealing dreams and your concept of that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, you know, the thing that enabled the world as we know it, including the fact that you and I are 10,000 miles apart and having a conversation for free, is... Industrialism. Industrialism is the idea that large organizations profit by getting bigger, by hiring efficient, productive workers who do what they are told. And the magic of industrialization, which has been around for 200 years or so, is that it enabled large, large numbers of people to go from being subsistence farmers to being in the middle class. And it's magical. But the challenge was there weren't enough factory workers. They couldn't find enough people who were willing to stand or sit in a dark factory for 10 or 12 hours a day and do what they were told. So we invented public school to train people to be obedient. I'm not making this up. That's actually its function. The first public school in the United States was in Massachusetts, and Horace Mann, the guy who started it, quickly ran out of teachers. So he needed to start a school to train women to be teachers. And do you know what he called this school? He called it the normal school because the goal was to teach women, to teach kids to be normal. So school, the school you went to and the school I went to, is optimized to create obedient cogs in a productive factory setting. And that was really important for a really long time. But now... Now that these platforms exist, now that individuals like you and I can do the work we care about without a job and without a boss, we shouldn't be teaching every single kid how to be normal. We should be teaching kids two things, how to solve interesting problems and how to lead. And if we have more of that, I think we're going to see our culture accelerate. So I wrote a manifesto about this called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's free on the internet.com. And I also did a TEDx talk about it for those who don't want to read it. 
Mm, yeah, no, it was it was extremely captivating, and you know we've all had this thing planted in our mind that ever since you're little, you you go to school, you get good grades, and you get a job, and you buy a house, and we're all used to that security. And I really love your latest book. It's it's quite different to what you've usually done. It's got beautiful artwork, and it's called Your Turn. Can you tell us about why people are waiting to be picked? Why do you think that is? Why are we used to this security of a, of a nine-to-five job? Well, part of it goes back 200,000 or so years. If you lived in a tribe, a Neanderthal or a Neolithic human, walking around the steppes of uh, Eastern Europe or Northern Africa, there was a chief. And if you offended the chief, if you spoke up too much, they were going to throw you out. And if you got thrown out, you would be eaten by a lion and you would have no grandchildren to pass your genes on to. So we evolved culturally and probably physically to understand that obeying people in power was a good idea. And this was certainly compounded by public school, compounded by the industrial age. You know, if you start insulting Henry Ford, Henry Ford's going to kick you off the factory floor and you're not going to have a job anymore. And so being picked, which is amplified by television, by governments, by celebrity culture, is something that we seek. One study that I can't believe is true, but is researchers talked to thousands and thousands of uh, high school students, and he gave them a choice of five jobs they could aspire to when they grew up, including Supreme Court justice, senator, successful entrepreneur. But far and away, the job that was the most popular among 17-year-olds was assistant to a celebrity. Oh, wow. Not even celebrity, assistant to a celebrity. Because if you're the assistant to a celebrity, it means someone picked you. It means you have proximity to fame without any of the fear or risk of fame. And so it goes really deep. And entrepreneurs are infected with this. And they think that their win is getting picked. And if we talk about apps, and I know you have an interest in this, you know, the, the challenge with the app store is that there are millions of apps in there. Last year, the app infrastructure paid more money to app developers than Hollywood earned from all the movies they make. <laughs> now, that, that sounds like a big number, except for the fact that Hollywood releases about 400 movies a year and there's millions and millions of apps. So it's a little bit of a sucker's game, especially if you think that the only way your app is going to work is if Apple picks you to be on the front page of the iTunes store. Because if your whole mindset is, I better get picked by Apple, you're going to lose. Because the odds of getting picked by Apple are about the odds of getting drafted to play in the NBA. Yeah, look, you know, that's actually funny because we... This is a funny story. We were actually we were picked by Apple. I never expected it. And they asked us for promotional cover, like promotional artwork, and they never got back to me. How strange is that? But yeah. I, I, I don't mind. Like we don't, we don't need to be picked. Um, question, what would you like to say to anyone listening to this that is sitting on the fence that, that has a, you know, an idea around, around a business or a project or a problem that they're really passionate about? What would you say to someone standing on the fence right now? Well, it's going to surprise you. The first two things I would say are, I don't care about your passion and I don't care about your idea. 
that these are myths that hold us back. You do not need to be passionate about your idea, and your idea does not need to be a good one. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning and shipping. That the idea is not to go big or stay home. The idea is to start small and start now. And that means do something that someone will pay you $5 for. Put an idea into the world that someone will respond to. Find someone who needs your help and help them. That if you start shipping this small amount of work, if you start putting ideas into the world and watching them morph and grow and change people, you will cease to be afraid and you will stop looking for the perfect idea and you will stop waiting to be super passionate. That the work, the professional, does the work of shipping stuff and doesn't wait around for perfect. That good is more than good enough if you can get into this game and be professional at it and then keep playing. Mm. When you talk about shipping, you have a very high quality, high standard of work. Um, I've had some friends that have done your internships and they've told me about how hard you push them and how high your standard is. How do you know when good is good enough and when to ship? Well, let's agree that perfect is silly because nothing that you admire is perfect. There is no electronic device. There is no hotel. There is no steak at a restaurant that has ever been perfect. So we're not going to seek to be flawless. The definition of good enough is it's good enough for the customer to be delighted enough to talk about it, delighted enough to come back for more, delighted enough to miss it when it's gone. So good enough doesn't mean junk. Good enough doesn't mean what the hell. Good enough is actually a huge standard. It says, would the person I'm offering this to missed it if I didn't make it. And most people don't meet that standard. So I want to just make it clear, if you are sitting there saying, I can't ship because it's not perfect, you are hiding. But if you were saying, oh, what the hell, and put it out there, you're also hiding. That the place of not hiding is, I've got a lot at stake here. This is magical, but I can't wait any longer. Mm, yeah, that's great. Few more questions around you. You're studying a lot of facts. I've always been curious to know who do you learn from and who influences a lot of your decisions and and I you know, where you where you have all your, your projects and your ideas and, and everything that you work on. Well, let's think. I'm most inspired by my readers, most inspired by people like you who show up and do something that never occurred to me and do it consistently, even in the face of a stumble or two. Well, who do I learn from? I read a, you know, a few hundred books a year. I don't have to finish them. I just read them until I get the point. Uh, I read hundreds of blogs a day. And in terms of facts, 66% of the time I make them up. <laughs> are, there any, are there any game-changing notable resources that has that is, really impacted you? You, I, you always talk about Zig Ziglar. Is there anyone else? Oh, I think there's a hundred. I also talk often about Pema Chodron. I talk about Krista Tippett and her podcast, which is so powerful. I talk about my friend Tom Peters, who I knew and have known for a long time. Jay Levinson, who I 
was lucky enough to bring into the world of book packaging and did a bunch of books with him. Mm. People like Amanda Palmer, her new book is is really something. Jackie Yuba has written a couple of great books. Bernadette Jiwa, J-I-W-A, who is from Perth but is moving to Melbourne soon. She Her blog is fabulous and so are her books. Pam Slim has written some great books. The The work of early digestible science fiction from Neil Stevenson, my friend Isaac Asimov, who I knew years ago before he died. I read a lot of science fiction growing up that changes things. Cory Doctorow, just by himself, reading Cory Doctorow is sufficient for somebody to be inspired on a regular basis. Uh, so there's a quite a long list, and I try to name-check people as often as I can. Mm, yeah, so you're always meeting people, and you're always consuming stuff. I'm curious... Can you give us an insight? Because I, I did not expect you to just jump on a call with me that quickly. You know, what what is what is what does Seth Godin's day look like? What what are you working on right now and, and how do you manage your time? I work super hard not to have a typical day. The consistent things are I don't watch television and I don't go to meetings. And those two decisions save me eight to ten hours a day. So that's eight to ten hours a day I have that most people don't have. And I strongly recommend you try it. And other than that, the goal is to do this work that's worth doing. And sometimes it means locking myself up in a room with no distractions. And other times it means talking to people who are working on interesting projects. I give probably 30 or 40 speeches a year. I run a few seminars on my own. We're getting ready for one in March now that's sold out today. So it's a mixture on purpose. You know, I'm super lucky that the internet likes people with ADD because if it hadn't shown up, I would have been in really big trouble. Yeah, look, the, you mentioned the internet and I always tell people this, like if you were going to start something, now is the time. The internet has changed the game. It's changed the playing field. Like, And you say it all the time, you know, anyone, anyone with a voice can have one now. Yeah, if you want to sing, sing. If you want to talk, talk. Here's a microphone. And the people who aren't, grabbing the microphone, are hiding. And I think almost everyone has some generosity in them, some insight in them, some idea or notion or concept that would make the world better if they shared it. And if we can just shift our posture to one of generosity, I think we'll see an enormous step forward. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about the Acumen Fund. Can you tell me why... That is so important to you. Sure. The, I think the Acumen Fund is one of the philanthropies that is working to change the endless emergency of poverty. So let me decode that sentence. Poverty is a very effective way to raise money in the short run. You know, give us some money or this kid will die. That idea of a bag of rice to a hungry person is at the heart of what made us philanthropists 10,000 years ago. The problem with that approach is in a world of more than 7 billion people, you're always going to be short. And instead, what we're looking for is a scalable solution so that once and for all, we live on a planet where everybody has enough. And I think the way we get there is the same way that Howard Schultz solved the coffee shortage in the United States, that there used to be no Starbucks, and now there's more than 10,000 Starbucks. How did that happen? Did he do a fundraiser and then build a lot of Starbucks? No. Every time he builds a Starbucks, 
he makes enough money to build another Starbucks because Starbucks pay for themselves. So the idea of Acumen is to invest in entrepreneurs who will build businesses that do business with the poor in a way that makes the poor better off and makes enough of a profit that they can do it again. Because the way markets work is no one engages in a transaction if it doesn't help them. So if you buy a coffee for $3, it's because you think it's worth $4, not because you're doing them a favor. So some of the companies that Acumen has funded include VisionSpring, which sells reading glasses to people in remote villages who are in their 50s and can't see anymore. Uh, if you buy a pair of reading glasses for $3, it will pay for itself in two days. And VisionSpring will make enough money to go sell somebody else a pair of reading glasses. Or D-Light, which is selling solar lanterns that replace kerosene, which is dangerous and expensive and dirty. Or A to Z, which is a factory in Tanzania that makes uh, malaria bed nets, so that not only is it enriching the community, it's saving millions of people from dying from malaria. Or Ecotact, a company in Kenya that runs pay toilets in places where there is no alternative. So you can either poop in the street or you can have your dignity for a shilling. And they can use the money from a successful Ecotac to open another one. And so if you get any of these businesses right, what you end up doing is solving the problem because they will keep scaling until there's no one left. And that's the magic of commerce, right, is that businesses grow until they can't grow anymore. And the other reason that I'm fascinated with Acumen is that Jacqueline Novogratz, the woman who founded it, is an extraordinary human being who brings her whole self to this mission and does it with such clarity of purpose that it inspires me every day. Mm. Yeah, no, it's I, I've donated a lot to it from from you, and it's it's a brilliant cause. Well, thank thank you. Let's talk about what it takes to build a successful business. You've you've built quite a few. It's something you've done many times in your career. What does it take? Well, let's be clear. I've also built even more unsuccessful businesses. Yeah, that too. Uh, yes, you, you mentioned and, that a lot. And I think that a, one of the things it takes is a willingness to build an unsuccessful business. That if you have to succeed, you will probably fail. Because you're competing against everyone else who has to succeed. And like them, you're not willing to take certain risks or bring certain truths to the marketplace. But if you care about the project and you care about the customer, you will not dilute your work. And that, ironically, will make your work more likely to catch someone's attention. I've written down a lot of what I know about starting a business with no money, which is my favorite kind of business to start. And people can find it by uh, searching for the Bootstrappers Bible mm. online. It's free. But basically, I think that the, the secret of starting a business with no money is to make a service or a product that your customers want so much that they will pay you for it in advance, which is a little bit like Kickstarter, right? But the, the idea is if you go to a, a big corporation and say, if I could do this and save you $50,000, will you pay me $10,000? And most of them, if they believe you, will say yes. And so now you've identified a problem. You've identified a scalable approach to solving it. You bring resources to bear, repeatedly solve the problem as you scale. That's very different than the mindset of let's raise $36 million in Silicon Valley and 
serve everyone free lunch for a year, and then we'll come out with something that'll get us on the cover of Time Magazine. There's also talk about marketing. You know, you're you're one of my favorite marketers. I learned so much from you. Can you just tell me, like, you, there's something you mentioned there about caring. You know, that's to me, that's something that people notice that subconsciously if you care, and it's not necessarily a tactic, but in in essence, it can be too. Like, just you know, it's caring. What are some basics around good marketing and somebody that wants to get better at their marketing with their business? Well, here's a good experiment you might want to try. I'm assuming in this experiment that you are a good tipper when you go to a restaurant, meaning you don't always give 10 or 15%. I hope it's not 10. But (laughs) if the person who's waiting on you does a great job, you give them more of a tip. Now, imagine you are marketing in human form as a waiter. Imagine that it's the, you know, it's spam filled, interruption oriented, filled with promises you don't keep, hyping your way through things, hoping a few people are silly enough to, to, to lurch into it, selfish, aggressive, bullying, right? If you had a waiter like that, would you give them a tip at all? Probably not. But when we have a waiter who is kind, clear, putting in an effort, aware of what we need, showing up when we need them, guiding us to the next thing that delights us, that person gets a 25% tip, and for good reason, right? Mm. And so for me, I am really moved when I encounter someone on the telephone, someone in person, someone who's doing their job who clearly cares. And I will go out of my way to do business with that person. And so when I do my work and I try to talk about how people can do their work, that's the goal, right? The goal is you're a human. Your customer is a human. Let's treat each other that way. Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's brilliant. You, great analogy. A few more questions. We have to work towards wrapping up because I know you've got to run soon. One, what have you had to sacrifice to get where you are today? What have you had to give up? I think the biggest thing I've had to give up is the quiet certainty that I have made my boss happy. <laughs> this, you know, the apparent safety of saying everything in my inbox is done. I can just relax this afternoon. And that means that I will find myself at three o'clock in the morning, writing something down on a post-it that I can't read the next morning because something popped into my head that I want to share. And it means that I never get what some people think of as the privilege of saying, I'm done. And a lot of people have trouble imagining a life where you're never done. But every time I get close to the point of saying, you know what, I should just stop, I realize I would hate being able to say I'm done. So I don't think I've sacrificed very much. I've worked super hard not to sacrifice anything in terms of my family. And I don't think working a lot of hours is correlated in any way with success. So I don't. And I do think that working with more passion than most people is correlated with success. And so when I'm done with work, I'm pretty empty. And... Out of all your success, what you know, quote unquote, success in the eye of society, I know you probably see it that way. What do you value the most out of all your achievements, accomplishments? 
three years ago, I was in Kibera, which is the biggest slum in Kenya. And a bunch of young men and a few young women had started a book club. And the Kibera book club had read my friend Jacqueline's book first. And then they read Lynchpin. And I went to run their meeting. And watching people who, by every measure of the privileged world, did not have any of the things that we think are essential, eagerly, just with such detail, talking about my book, that these 40 people had read my book more closely than anyone I had ever talked to, including friends and family. It was stunning to me that I could travel 10,000 miles across the earth safely and in comfort, go to a place that by many measures isn't a place that most people would choose to live and be invited into the home of this group of, of people and see that not only did it impact them, but that they were already eagerly impacting everyone around them. It gave me real hope for who we are as a people. And it invigorated me to step back into the kind of work that I'm privileged to be able to do. Mm. Oh, that's an amazing story. You know, I, I'm with you. I think that's where the real gold is at, having having that impact. You know, seeing those emails come through where somebody says, you know, you, you've, you've changed their life. You know, you can't, you can't put a price on that, hey? That's right. You can't. And um, the thing that's extraordinary is, you know, not only did my English teacher write in my yearbook that I was the bane of her existence <laughs> and that I would never, ever amount to anything, but the door is still open. Right, like you, no one, no one is going to be the next Seth Godin. No one wants there to be a next Seth Godin, but there's plenty of room for the next you, because we need you, a different person, to stand up and say, "Here, I made this." Those doors aren't going to be open forever, but they're open right now, and I just don't see why you wouldn't walk through them. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this conversation, Seth. I could speak to you all day. Last question, though, because I know you got to hit the road. Action items for our audience, aspiring and novice entrepreneurs. Three action items. Well, I guess action item number one, the most important one is stop being an aspiring entrepreneur and be an entrepreneur. And that means ship some work and get paid for it. Action item number two is figure out who you can teach that you know, most people who ask someone to mentor them would be better off mentoring someone else instead. Because that act of teaching someone who doesn't know something you know will make you significantly smarter. And then I guess the third simple building block action item is blog every day. It doesn't matter if anybody reads it. It doesn't matter if you put your real name on it. Blog every day. Because the act of writing something down that you believe in, that you've thought about and knowing you have to do it again tomorrow will make you better at everything you do the founder podcast has come to a close but it's not time to sleep it's time to hustle download the richard branson issue of founder magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash branson again that's an absolutely free download of the richard branson issue of founder magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself it's only available at foundermag.com slash branson so download it now and we'll see you next time on the founder podcast
Oh, <laughs> 